Father, the greatness, the majesty, the loftiness of, of Your holiness, Father, astounds us when we are honest and we do business with the own sinfulness of, of our, our fallen nature. Our prayer, Father, is that as we study these passages tonight, and in particular this, this text that Efton has read for us, that we will gain understanding into what, what has happened and why things are the way that they are and what it is that You're doing to, to rectify it and, and to turn all of history back toward You. Father, we're thankful for the cross and for the ways that You have blessed us with grace and with um, a sense of Your presence, Father, even in our fallen state, a testimony of the Spirit in our heart, Father, convicting us of sin and of judgment and of righteousness. For these things we're thankful, and we pray, Father, that You bless us in our study. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This uh, last week, I uh, spent some time rereading Hannah Arndt's uh, book, uh, Eichmann on Trial, The Banality of Evil. And it's about uh, Otto Adolf Eichmann, who was captured by the Mossad in Buenos Aires in 1960. And he was tried in Jerusalem and found to be guilty. And he was hanged in Israel for war crimes associated with the Holocaust that he had committed in Germany during the Second World War. And Hannah Arndt was a journalist and a writer. And she was sent from America to Jerusalem to cover the trial. And she, uh, she writes uh, a, a very personal book about her experience there in Jerusalem and seeing Eichmann for the first time. And she was a little bit undone, uh, in fact, very much disturbed uh, by the things that she witnessed and just how ordinary Eichmann was the first time she saw him sitting in, in, the, uh, in the docket. He did not look like a monster at all. And yet, this man, who was not looking, appearing in any way to be a monster, was capable of engineering and participating, not just in the first solution and the second solution, but in the final solution and, and the, 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 the genocide, of, of the attempted genocide of the Jewish people in that area. He is uh, the, the, the person that Simon Weisenthal was thinking about when he described the desktop murderers. Now, on the flip side of that coin, where you have somebody that doesn't look very monstrous at all being able to do some very monstrous things, on the flip side of that coin, you, you have Michael Burley writing in 2010 a book entitled The Moral Combat. And there's a section in this book where he does address some of the things that Hannah Arndt writes in her book about the banality of evil. And he says that the banality of evil phrase that she coined during that trial has become cliché and gives evidence of many gratuitous acts of violence by those that were involved in the Holocaust. So when you take what's written in both of these books, you have evil that is perpetrated by monsters and those that don't look like monsters. A little bit closer to home. This past week in San Antonio, a man shoots a woman in, a, in her head after she and her friends blocked the entrance to the bathroom at a local bar. They're standing in the way. She and her friends, I guess, didn't want to move. He gets mad. When they go into the parking lot, he tries to run them down and shoots her down. What's wrong with us? 
What is wrong with us? And what makes us capable of doing these kinds of things? If that question does not burn in your heart, then then it may be that your head is in the sand. The answer to that question is the problem of, of underestimating sin. Of underestimating it. Back in 1982, there was a movie uh, that came out of Hollywood. Uh, nobody really wanted uh, to be a part of it. They were switching parts back and forth. And, and finally, uh, James Cameron got his cast together, got the script together, and the movie The Terminator came out in 1982. And the Terminator movie is about a nearly unstoppable, nearly indestructible, and almost undetectable cyborg. It's a science fiction movie that comes from the future to assassinate a 19-year-old Sarah Connors. And the problem in this movie is that everyone in the, the, uh, the area of L.A. that knows what's sort of happening, they're, they're trying to protect Sarah Connor, but they underestimate the predatory killing power of the Terminator. They realize that all the women by the name of Sarah Connor in L.A. are being, uh, are being murdered, they get in contact with this Sarah Connor and they say, listen, you need to stay in a public place because if you're in a public place, he's not going to attack you. Guess what? The Terminator doesn't care, goes right into the public place and begins to shoot the place up. They get her into the police station. They say, you're safe here. Not so. They underestimate the power of the Terminator. And the Terminator comes into the police station and and shoots it up. The cops underestimate completely underestimate their predicament because they underestimate the Terminator. And they do it all the time throughout the entire movie. Now, in our text that Efton read, God says to Cain, you're underestimating the sin. You, Cain, do not know the power of sin in your heart. At this time... Sin is is fairly new, but sin is the great problem in the world. And that power of the great enemy of of God, the sin, that power is amplified and it's aggravated every time that we we underestimate it. Now, when we look at this text, we begin to see some of the nature of of, of what sin really is all about. And and the first thing that we understand or we we see in this text, beginning in verse 7, is that sin crouches. Sin crouches. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. In Hebrew, very graphic language. I have a, a German shepherd by the name of Lonnie. She comes. She, she is the great despiser of cats and squirrels. And she comes from a long line of German shepherds that we've owned that, that are despisers of cats and squirrels. And when we let her out into the backyard, she sees a cat or she, you know, or basically it's a squirrel in the backyard. When she sees a squirrel, you know what she does? She gets low. She crouches down. When she sees one, she gets low. She tries to get out of view. She tries to look smaller. She tries to get as close to the ground as she can. Our German Shepherd Daisy, sometimes she would army crawl very slowly on the ground trying to make her way towards that squirrel. She's crouching, ready to spring, ready to pounce. The same thing is true of a lion. When a lion sees the prey, what does the lion do? The lion crouches. The lion tries to get small. The the lion tries to... To, to, to get small and to be unseen and to get close. Now, this is the way that sin is pictured in your heart. 
It hides in our rationalization of it. We begin to rationalize and it always looks smaller. It's no big, de- big deal. We're rationalizing it. It's hiding in that rationalization, but it's crouching. And in the middle of our ordinary life, in the middle of an ordinary day, is a monster waiting to pounce. And God is telling Cain that in the midst of some very ordinary, some very ordinary human emotions is a sin crouching at the door of his heart, ready to pounce. And so what has happened to bring him to this place? Well, Adam and Eve have children, Cain and Abel, after they're, they're, they're removed from the Garden of, of Eden. Cain and Abel get to an age where one is a man of the field and one is a man of, 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 of herds. And they come together one day to offer a sacrifice. And for a very, very long time, it was thought that the problem had to deal with the fact that they offered wrong kinds of gifts. That Cain offered grain, that Abel offered an animal sacrifice. God preferred the animal over the grain. The problem is, is the Hebrew word that is used here is the type of sacrifice that is known as dedicatory, or it's a dedication type of a sacrifice. It's a, a dedication offering, not for sin, not for atonement, none of these kinds of things. It's, it's, it's different from a sin offering where you're not going to God for forgiveness. In a dedication sacrifice, you're, you're taking something that's really important to you and you're giving it to God as a sign of His importance to you. Symbolically, it's the giving of yourself. And that's what's happening here is that this, this Hebrew offering, this sacrifice, the, the, the mincha, is about worship. And it's about showing God how big and important He is. Now, we do the same kind of thing in our own culture. There's a guy that falls in love with a girl and he wants to give the girl an engagement ring. It's beautiful. It's precious. He's paid a lot of money for it. And it's his way of saying that I want to make the most profound commitment of love and loyalty to you. And she's thinking about it. And then as she thinks about it, she, she discovers, she finds out that while he's giving her the ring, that he's still in a relationship. He's sleeping with a couple of women on the side in secrecy. But he's given her a ring. So what will she do? Say, thank you? No, what she will say is that this isn't love. This is bribery. You're a liar and you're half-hearted. You have to back up your words with a life that matches those words. That's why we read in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Cain was a half-hearted worshiper and God's not happy. It's a bribe. Cain's offering a bribe. This is why God had regard for Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. God is in Cain's life, but he's not really following God. And he's not gotten what he's wanted out of this half-hearted sacrifice. And so in verse 6, Cain is angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? You know, Cain is upset. He thinks that Abel is such a goody-goody two-shoes. Back when I was in middle school at the lunch table one time, because I went to church every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, I was called a Jesus freak. He's such a goody good. He's so good. And God says, be careful. There is power in that grudge. There's power in that resentment. Cain, you don't know this, but a monster is hiding itself in your half-heartedness. 
And that little ball of anger grows up into murder. Lust is adultery in a little ball. Envy is materialism in a little ball. Racism is ethnic cleansing and holocaust just in a little ball. Half-heartedness is a golden calf in a little ball. Greed is idolatry in a little ball. You see, we rationalize it and we don't see that predatory power of that sin and the power of it. And, and all of a sudden, it is given a chance to pounce. And it grows into something that we never expected. Not only do we see sin crouching, but we see sin hungering. Sin's desire is to have you. That's why it crouches. He says in verse 7, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. Its desire is for you. You know, when you sin, any, any kind of a sin, that action just doesn't disappear in, into smoke or in, into a vapor trail. Uh, a, a fellow by the name of Cornelius Plantiga wrote a very significant book on sin back in the, in the 1990s where he writes that sin is like pollution. It's like bad hygiene. It multiplies and it goes everywhere and everybody it touches is affected by it. When you tell a lie... Think about this. When you tell a lie, you're not done lying, are you? You have to tell another lie to cover that lie, and then another and another and another. When you sin, the, the action just does not disappear. It begins to multiply itself. When you lie, you have to tell another. You've got over in the Old Testament, David who is bored at midlife. He's not going out to fight the battles that God has given him to fight. So he stays home from all of those battles. And he gets up one night... In the evening, in the cool of the evening, he's up on the roof of his house and he sees a woman next door bathing on the roof. And he desires her and he beds her and he impregnates her and he begins to hide it and nothing seems to work. And before you know it, this lust is murder in a little ball. And David has Uriah killed. And it started out being bored on the rooftop one night. And not only do you find yourself in a vicious, vicious cycle, but Galatians 6, verse 7, God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that he will also, what? Reap. Liars are lied to. And cheaters are cheated. Cowards are abandoned. So what are we to do? What are we to do? Well, let's go back to the Terminator for a second. Here is this monster that is after Sarah Connor throughout the entire movie. He is chasing her down. He cannot be stopped. He is at times undetectable. He is unstoppable. He is, he is a tremendous power that is going after her. The predatory power of the Terminator is immense. She doesn't know what she's going to be able to do to survive. And it looks like everything is lost. And then all of a sudden, somebody appears and says, If you come with me, you'll live. You take my hand, you'll live. God asked Cain, why are you downcast? Why are you angry? God is trying to get Cain to acknowledge that sin is the real enemy. It's not Abel. Sin is the real enemy. You're, you're, you're not miserable because of what has happened to you. You're miserable, miserable because of what is in you. 
But Cain doesn't listen very well. That sin that is crouching is hungering for him and pounces and takes him. And Cain kills Abel. And God asks another question later. Where is your brother Abel? He's not trying to get information. It's like asking Adam and Eve, where are you? He knows. Where's your brother Abel? He knows. The question is for the benefit of Cain. But by this point, the sin has devoured Cain completely. Am I my brother's keeper? And God takes him to a pool of blood and says, your brother cries out. Your brother cries out. And what is it that the blood of Abel cries out for? Justice. Justice. But just like in that movie back in 1982, some years later, there's another pool of blood that God takes us to. There's one who comes and says, if you come with me, you'll live. And God takes us to another pool of blood that cries out as well. But this time, it's not crying crying out for justice. It's crying out justified. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel cries out, justified, or or, or, justice, justice. There needs to be justice. The blood of Jesus cries out, justified. You know, the problem is that regardless of how old we get, sin is, is going to be a problem unless we see the nature of it, that sin is predatory in, in nature, that it crouches at the door of your heart, that it tries to hide itself, all of its power, all of its intent. It tries to get low. It tries to get into a corner. It tries to get low where you can't see it. It tries to make itself look small, and it hides itself in all of our rationalization. But we should never, ever lose sight of the fact that that sin hungers. Its desire is for you. But the answer is Jesus. The answer is Jesus. Tonight, uh, we're going to offer an invitation. Brad's going to lead us in in one final song before we close out tonight. And during the singing of the song, some of our shepherds, our spiritual leaders of our congregation, are going to come forward. And if there are ways that we can minister to you tonight, to pray for you, to help you to deal with that sin that may be crouching at the door of your heart, hungering for you, and you need help. You know that you can't tackle it. The power of you don't want to underestimate it anymore in your life. You want the power of God to come and to subdue the power of the predatory sin in your life. You can do that by claiming the blood of Jesus through baptism and being being buried in, in the waters and coming up to a newness of life. It's having God's Spirit come into your life and giving you a power that you've never known before. In Ephesians 3, Paul talks about the, the, the power of the Spirit giving us some kind of an inner strength in the inner man. And able to be the kind of people that God has always designed us to be, which is to be conformed to the image of Jesus. If there's any way that we can minister to you tonight, we're going to ask you to come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand and sing together. Buried with Christ, my blessed Redeemer, dead to the